0: Just before Bishop Andrew does come up, I did just want to give you a, a little um, introduction to uh, who he is. I don't know whether you know much about Bishop Andrew. He's actually come from Birmingham and has a really excited, exciting ministry there. I think the last thing you did, Bishop Andrew, was sign a contract for the gas works um, so that rather uh, an exciting plant from Holy Trinity Brompton could could go up there, uh, led by Tim Hughes and a team. And uh, Bishop Andrews had a very um, fruitful ministry. He's been in a number of different churches since Stephen's Twickenham's. He's seen churches grow. He's seen... Uh, churches or led churches that have planted churches. And so we're really, really uh, excited that you're here in Guildford. And we know that you've got a very uh, exciting vision for the diocese. And we just wanted you to know as a church that we're delighted you're here. We stand together with you. We want to support you uh, as best we can in any way with the joys and also probably the challenges uh, of being a bishop too. And we wanted you to know that you're always welcome here. We'd love you uh, to come here as much as you can, uh, either officially or just sneak through the back door and hide at the back. You're, you're always welcome here. Should we give Bishop Andrew another round of applause before he comes up? Thank
1: you very much to Mike. I didn't realize it was your birthday. Sorry, I won't say it again, but happy birthday. <laughs> Fantastic. Brilliant. I have already sneaked into the back door uh, about three or four weeks ago, and uh, it was lovely to worship with you then, and it's lovely to be back now. Let's uh, bow our heads to pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage from John's Gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are willing to be that seed buried in the ground in order that the life that was in you might be multiplied. We thank you, Lord, that we are only here because of that willingness. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word this morning and help us to walk with Jesus through this holy week. In his name, amen. Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus had a problem because Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus, otherwise known as Pliny the Younger, had been sent as an ambassador to the province of Bithynia in modern-day Turkey by the Roman emperor Trajan, and wherever he went, he kept on bumping into Christians. And so in the year 112 AD, Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus wrote to emperor Trajan to ask for his advice, and the letter, amazingly, has survived to this day. The Christians he'd come across, wrote Pliny, maintained that they met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honour of Christ, as if to a god. After the ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble later to eat together, but they had in fact given up this practice since my edict, which banned all political societies. This made me decide that it was necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. This matter seems to me worth deliberation, Pliny continued, especially on account of the numbers of those in danger. A great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women, are being brought to trial, and this is likely to continue. It is not only the towns, but villages and country districts too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. Yet it seems possible to stop it and put it right." End of quotation. While Pliny the Younger was clearly no friend of the Christians, any religion that proclaimed that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord was always going to be grossly offensive to a Roman citizen like himself. But the most striking feature of Pliny's letter is its reference to the sheer number and variety of those who are being drawn into the life of the early church. Men and women from every age and class, free and slave, from towns and the countryside, all being brought together in worship of Jesus and of their loving Heavenly Father. We can almost imagine and hear in the letter Pliny's disdain of these two slave women whom he had arrested and tortured, women with no rights and the lowest possible status in Roman society. Yet in this new Christian society, these women were deaconesses, they were leaders in the life of the early church. Perhaps Pliny was right to feel threatened as the whole Roman social order was being quietly undermined by these little groups of Christians meeting together before dawn. And the surprise, of course, is that the Christian missionary movement, the first truly global, non-violent movement in human history, came from Israel, a nation more traditionally concerned about its own purity, even its own survival, than about ministering to the Gentiles, the dogs as they were called, called, those outside of the nation. At first sight, even Jesus, the movement's hero, seemed to share that perspective, firmly telling a Canaanite woman that, quote, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, within less than a century of this hero's death, There were Christian believers not only in Israel and Samaria, but also in Turkey and Greece and Italy and Spain, in Egypt and Libya and Arabia, in India and Ethiopia, and all points in between. Enough Christian believers, in fact, to be causing Gaius, Plinius, Caecilius, Secundus, and even the Emperor Trajan far away in Rome, a real headache. And so to our Gospel reading this morning, and there were some Greeks, writes St. John, who had travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. They were probably what were called God-fearers, that is, Gentiles, who'd come to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had heard about Jesus, about his teaching and his miracles, and understandably, they were intrigued and wanted to meet him. And so they went to Philip, and Philip went to Andrew, and for those Andrews among us, how nice to see him mentioned. At this point in the Gospel, he tends to get overshadowed by his loud brother, Simon Peter, and by his rather noisy cousins, James and John. But anyway, Philip went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went to Jesus. Did you notice, as the reading was read, those wonderful words of those Greeks, Sir, we want to see Jesus. What lovely words for us, again, to focus on this Holy Week. At first sight, Jesus' response to the request seemed rather irrelevant, and St. John even forgets to tell us whether those Greeks ever actually met Jesus or not. Instead, Jesus led his disciples into a meditation about seeds and plants, life and death, servants and masters, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, he said, it will remain a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And yet that irrelevant-sounding meditation explains the worldwide growth of the Christian movement following the extraordinary events of that first Holy Week. For some time, Jesus had been talking about his hour not having yet come. But now for the first time, he said, the hour has come. This was no time for the seed that was Jesus to be sat on a shelf in the tool shed, just gathering dust. This was a time for the seed to be buried, in that sense to die, if it were to produce many seeds. If the gospel of the crucified, risen, exalted Lord Jesus were to be proclaimed throughout the world. Just a few days later, on that Friday of Holy Week, Jesus would be hanging on a cross and about to die. On the surface, it would look like the ultimate defeat, yet another failed Messiah receiving his just deserts at the hands of the mighty Roman Empire. And yet, what was the last word that he spoke before he died? It was an Aramaic word, tetelestai, it is finished. Not, I am finished, but it is finished. Not a cry of sad resignation, but a cry of triumph. So what exactly was finished on that first Good Friday? What was achieved through the death and burial of the seed that was Jesus? Well, in the Jewish calendar, Sunday was the first day of the week. And that made Friday the sixth day of the week. And way back in that great introduction to the book of Genesis, God made man on day six of creation, on the Friday. And God saw what he had made and proclaimed it very good. And then we read this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his labors. Moving ahead to the events of Good Friday, the sixth day, it was hardly man's finest hour. There was the betrayal of Judas Iscariot and the cowardice of the other apostles. There was the feebleness of Pontius Pilate and the hatred of the religious authorities. There was the fickleness of the crowds and the brutal, sickening violence of the soldiers. On this particular Friday, any idea that mankind was very good looked like a sick joke. But one man emerged unscathed from the wreckage. Unscathed, that is, apart from his body, which was scathed beyond recognition. Jesus retained a steadfast integrity a very goodness throughout the whole messy affair. Behold the man, said Pontius Pilate on that Friday, showing that even he recognized that Jesus was someone special. Surely this was a righteous man, said the centurion at the foot of the cross, and then surely this was the Son of God. So why was this one good man dying while other bad men watched on in hatred and mockery? And what was triumphantly finished on the cross? What on earth did it achieve? Simply this, the possibility of our forgiveness, healing, and restoration. The possibility of a world where God could once again look at humankind and declare us very good. The possibility of one seed becoming many seeds. Indeed, the body of Christ multiplying from just one body into a multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The possibility of spending eternity in the glorious presence of our Lord himself and in the company of all those who have looked to Jesus for life and salvation. And if Good Friday, the sixth day, is the time when we see man at his very worst and in Jesus at his very best, if Holy Saturday, the seventh day, is the time when Jesus had finished the work he had been doing and was resting in the quiet of the garden tomb, so the first day of the new week Easter Sunday, what the early church called the eighth day, is nothing less than the beginning of a whole new creation brought into being through the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Now here's where our passage begins to get a little more challenging. Because as those whom Jesus has called to follow me, the message is clear. Wherever the master goes, the disciple must go also. It is not simply Jesus' calling, in other words, to reject the safety and ease of a life sitting on a shelf in the tool shed, gathering dust. It is our calling, the calling of all who follow him, to allow our lives to be buried in the ground as well, living not for ourselves, as St. Paul put it, but for him who died for us and was raised again. What did Jesus mean about burying our lives, losing our lives, even hating our lives. Isn't that all rather dismal, a bit gloomy? After all, hadn't Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel that he came to bring life, life in abundance, life in all its fullness? How does that all compute? It computes like this, that every attempt to grab hold of life with a clenched fist, to hold on to my security, my money, My rights and my privileges, my comforts and my ambitions is to be replaced by an open-handed trust in the love and faithfulness of God. When Jesus talks about the perils of loving life, he is talking of a stifling love, a love that grips so tight that it suffocates the very thing that it is supposed to protect. And how much more fulfilling to say this, Lord, it is all yours. This money that you've given me, this time, these ambitions, this security, these gifts, Lord, let's do something exciting together. There is a title of a book on my bookshelves that puts it really well. It's by Michael Griffiths, and it's called Give Up Your Small Ambitions. Because if our ambition is simply to get by, to make our lives and the life of our nuclear family as comfortable as possible, to place all that we are and all that we have on the shelf in the tool shed, we are not really living as followers of Christ. It reminds me of a funeral visit I did some years back, where the widow of the deceased said proudly to me, he never did anyone any harm. To which I felt like asking, though you'll be relieved to know I didn't, yes, but did he ever do anyone any good? (laughs) In the current climate, such a passionate, open-handed faith can be misread as dangerous fanaticism. After all, we know about people who bury their lives, who lose them, who hate them, and we call them suicide bombers. How much better, then, some would argue, to remain a little bit Lukewarm and restrained in our faith, even to have no faith at all, than to run the risk of uh, changing into radical extremists and doing far more harm than good. But the truth, of course, is this that Jesus wasn't talking about dying in order to kill, he was talking about dying in order to bring life. The whole point of burying the seed in the ground is that it brings life to many seeds. And yes, it's true that religious extremists have sometimes done terrible things in the name of their gods. But those terrible things are outweighed 100 to 1 by followers of Jesus doing amazing things all around the world. And I met some of them, and they are truly amazing, including here in the Church of England, where, for example, worshippers in our churches gave £393 million pounds last year for social action projects. That is four times the amount raised by comic relief. It's just we don't shout about it too much. There are times when it takes all our efforts just to keep going in our Christian journey, let alone to face some brand new challenge. Faced perhaps with tough pressures at work, with bereavement or ill health, with debt or redundancy, with the demands of family tantrums, whether of the toddler or teenage or even adult variety, the simple choice is this, either to tighten our fists in anger and hopelessness and resentment, or else to open them up, trusting that God will somehow see us through. Indeed, those times when we feel almost buried under a sense of fear, uncertainty and sheer exhaustion can also play their part in God's purposes for our lives, as the fruits of faith and perseverance and sheer dogged resilience grow within us. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. If it dies, it bears much fruit. But there are other times, too. Times when life becomes a little too comfortable, when we are sitting on a shelf in the tool shed and not beginning to live up to our divinely created potential. In the past, perhaps, We've been more courageous, more daring and committed, but somehow we've become steadily more risk-averse as we've gone on. A kind of spiritual middle-aged spread has set in. And once again, there's a simple choice that lies before us, either to tighten our fists in an attempt to hold on to what we've already achieved, or else to open them up, to look to God for fresh adventures, for renewed fruitfulness. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was the experience of the early church, after all, following the death and resurrection of Jesus their Lord, a church whose missionary vibrancy was soon causing Gaius, Plinius, Caecilius, Secundus, and even the emperor Trajan to be reaching for the neurophen And that has been the experience of the church ever since, as men, women, young people and children have stuck to their faith through thick and thin and made an extraordinary impact on the world around them. Who would have thought that little groups of Christians meeting before dawn to chant verses alternately between themselves would eventually conquer the mighty Roman Empire? Who would have thought that little groups, then big crowds of Christians lighting candles in the dockyards of Poland and the streets of East Germany, would eventually bring down the mighty Soviet Empire? Who would have thought that the church in China, apparently so dead and buried during the time of Mao Tung, would grow from two million believers when my missionary grandparents left in 1938 to an estimated 70 or 80, even 100 million believers today. Truly, we can say of Jesus that when he is truly high and lifted up, he does indeed draw all people to himself. And truly, we can release our lives into his service, praying that all that we are and all that we have might be wonderfully multiplied for the sake of the world he loves so much. We pray. Just a little earlier, I mentioned two possible groups of people, those for whom life is a huge challenge at the moment and who need to. Just trust in the faithfulness of God to see you through. And those for whom life has perhaps become a little too unchallenging. We need to open their hands afresh to fresh direction, a fresh sense of what God is calling you to next. I'd just like to pray for both groups of people this morning and... First I'd like to pray for those going through particular challenges at this time. Perhaps you might like to stand and I'll just pray God's blessing to rest upon you. Father, we know that Jesus said that in this world you will have many troubles. Jesus was realistic about the challenges that life would throw up along the way. And yet, Father, thank you too that Jesus promised I will be with you even to the end of the age. That because the Lord is my shepherd, I will fear nothing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff comfort me. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning facing challenges of different kinds. Thank you, Lord, that each one of them has come today. They've had the courage to come along, to worship you, to meet with your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would sustain and strengthen each one. you'd help them, Lord, to grow stronger through these coming days. And that in your way and your time, Lord, you would just show the right way through that situations that now seem very difficult, even perhaps hopeless, I'd be wonderfully reversed through the work of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus who hung on that cross and yet for whom death was not the end. So minister in the lives of these, your dearly beloved children, Lord, we pray, and minister through them into these challenging situations they face. Grant them wisdom, grant them courage, Help them never, Lord, to turn away from you in resentment or bitterness, but this morning to open their hands afresh to your love, to your life, to that wonderful, endless hope that comes from following the risen Jesus. For his name's sake, amen.